the world we know is changing. I'm Moira Gunn, and welcome to Biotech Nation. At some point in our lives, we all need pain relief, whether it's for surgery or due to chronic pain or for any number of medical conditions. But in getting that relief, there is also the specter of opioid addiction. I'm speaking with Dr. Hernan Bassan, co-founder and CEO of South Rampart Pharma and a professor of surgery and cardiovascular innovation at Oxner Health in New Orleans. Well, Dr. Bassan, welcome to Biotech Nation. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you are working in an area that I think everyone is 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 interested in, in the sense that we all need pain relief if we're going through a surgery, if we have some kind of injury, if we have some kind of chronic uh, condition, and yet we're all afraid of opioid addiction. How do we balance these two? How do we address this? Well, that's a real good question uh, in terms of what is the safe way of treating pain. And and it's a, it's incredible because in the life science and biotech industry, there's been so many developments in oncology and new cancer drugs, cancer modalities, in uh, infectious diseases, immunotherapies. And the one space that where there hasn't been really any pain innovation is any innovation has been in pain. Um, and um, specifically, the medicines that we have, the opioids, obviously, really came to be in the 1890s with morphine and then repurposed uh, with heroin and, uh, and then uh, oxycodone in the 90s. And those have been, um, obviously, we all know the, the deleterious effects of abuse with those. And then acetaminophen, or in the U.S., Tylenol, and in world markets, Panadol, really came to be in the 50s. And since then, there's been no innovation in that in that particular space of pain. And then the other are the non-steroidals, like ibuprofen, Advil. Um, and that came to be a decade or two later, and there's been really no other candidates. Um, there are some that are in development, but they're fairly experimental. Um, and so the pain, the pain space is something that's for which there's been no innovation really for 40, 50 years. Uh, and as you mentioned, it's such an omnipresent problem uh, in the young, middle age, and old. How to treat pain safely without risk of abuse, without risk of liver injury, like is present in acetaminophen, or without risk of kidney toxicity, like with non-steroidals, like ibuprofen, or cardiovascular issues like elevation of blood pressure with NSAIDs. So if we were to characterize the problem with the pain relievers is that we either have some kind of addiction, which we do with the opioids, uh, or we can have liver toxicity, we can have any number of things. All of those together would be what we have to address with new pain relief. How would you actually list what the parameters are for solving this problem? So that's the essence of the question. How to avoid, avoid the abuse potential of opioids um, with um, overuse? And unfortunately, uh, three months after being exposed to opioids, a significant number of people that were opioid naive that had never been exposed are still using opioids. Um, and in the past uh, year, unfortunately, the overdose deaths were over 100,000, um, primarily because of synthetic fentanyl, but a lot of that started with opioid misuse. And the second challenge is um, how to avoid liver toxicity with Tylenol, 
entelinol-like compounds uh, with its overuse uh, or misuse or an advertent overdose. Uh, and then the third is how to avoid the kidney and cardiovascular effects like elevation in blood pressure in patients with high, hypertension, with high blood pressure, with anti-steroidals, NSAIDs like Advil. And so those are the parameters to try to overcome and try to be a differentiator, to try to improve and innovate in the safer treatment of pain. Now, your father, also Dr. Bassan, is a very famous scientist as well. And uh, the two of you, I know, are working together with and with others. Uh, what are you trying to do? So together, what, what we began in late 2016 was a way to, to, to innovate the, the safer treatment of pain. Um, and we did this with a collaboration with a, with a chemist in Spain and, and then the university in New Orleans. And then after we had a library of compounds, we worked allegedly to see what was safe and reproducible. And we found a candidates, um, and there was a reason and rationale for designing the compounds in a certain way. And then we proved how it's not toxic to the liver, the two mechanisms of how it's not toxic to the liver compared to, say, Tylenol-like compounds. And so that was really the basis for which we then led and, and began the development, including understanding also how it works in the brain, what the mechanism is for how it leads to pain relief in the brain. So we have pretty good evidence and pretty good conviction that not only is it safe um, without liver toxicity, because it, it is not an opioid, it doesn't have the risk of abuse, it lacks that abuse. And because it's not an NSAID like Advil, it doesn't have kidney issues. And so understanding the mechanisms, how it's not liver toxic, gives us a lot of confidence that it should be safe in humans. Because after all, that's our priority, that the candidate be safe and then that it works. And so since that time, we've been able to decipher through different ways how it works in the brain. And it interestingly works the similar way as Tylenol. Um, which gives us confidence that it actually will work in humans when we get to those types of what are called efficacy trials like phase two and phase three. Well, I'm going to ask you a question that you may say, doesn't everybody know the answer? But I got a feeling a lot of people have this question. Let's say I hurt my arm. I bang it against something. Um, the pain is there, but is the pain really in my brain? Where's the pain? Well, it's a perception. And that's the thing about pain that it's a subjective perception and different individuals have different thresholds for it. Um, it's interesting. So let's say that you go to the emergency room with a long bone fracture. Um, just to give an idea to the listeners, you know, it used to be that they would be given uh, an opioid intravenously, morphine or dilaudid, and to take care of the, of the pain. Now we know fairly with fairly good evidence from randomized trials that if those patients get uh, a large dose of Tylenol and Advil in combination, it's safe. As, it's as safe uh, and or as efficacious as, as as opioids. The risk is if those patients have liver or kidney toxicity effects from it, if they have some sort of liver or kidney predisposition. You know, there's a lot of obesity in the U.S. and a lot of NASH. I know you had an episode recently about NASH, uh, non-alcoholic steatohepatosis, liver disease, fatty liver disease. Those patients may not be able to tolerate high doses of, of, of Tylenol-like drugs. Or if someone has uh, cardiovascular disease and kidney issues, they may not be able to get a high dose of Advil. Um, but long bone fractures, the perception may be different among individuals, but certainly can be treated safely with non-opioid therapies. So I'm looking at my arm or my leg but the pain is actually registering my brain. It's, this, it's a peripheral sensation into the brain, 
and and we all have different thresholds of how we feel it. And so that's exactly right. And so the way that this candidate works is in the brain by in producing brain. a certain molecule through what are called the cannabinoid receptors that leads to a pain relief. Now, let me ask you another question that a lot of people are wondering about. Why are opioids addictive and the Tylenol-like and the Advil-like uh, substances are not? Yeah, that's just the basic way um, of how the signaling happens in the brain with what are called the opioid receptors, the mu and the kappa opioid receptors, and what's called the habituation. And basically, unfortunately, the buildings of the building of what's called tolerance. So you become tolerant to a, a low dose, and then you need a higher dose. And the risk is, as that happens, once you get to a high enough dose, then you can start having problems. And the real problem is if you then stop breathing, respiratory depression. And that's the big risk. But the, 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 the habitual dependence from opioid misuse is all because of the way it works in the brain with the what are called the opioid receptors. So the Tylenol-likes and the Advil-likes, they hit a different part of the brain. Correct. It did not work on the opioid receptors. And so they don't have an abuse potential in terms of habitual or addictive potential. So this tells you that there's a lot of different places in the brain you can hit to try to go after pain. And that's where you're at. You're in another place in the brain. Now tell us... Uh, are you talking about something you can take orally? How does this work? Sure. So the what we have is we have an oral form that we've been able to develop that we're actually giving to humans now in a phase one trial. We've been able to develop it all the way to the clinic, and we're in a phase one trial with an oral form. We've also um, actually working with a company here in San Diego, where we are, you and I today, um, are uh, working with um, a formulation company to do an intravenous form. And we've had success with that because the idea is to be able to deliver it orally as an outpatient, say, um, as a consumer product, or also uh, after surgery. So one of the big voids is the safer treatment of pain after surgery. So for example, you can't IV, say take a pill. <laughs> can't say take a pill after surgery. And IV Tylenol works works really well after surgery to reduce the pain. You know, we see this all the time in our in our operating rooms. Um, to reduce the risk of, of, uh, of opioid exposure or to minimize that risk, how much they have to be dosed, or even all opioids altogether. The risk is after a few days, it can't be used anymore because of the chance of liver toxicity. Or in patients with, again, fatty liver disease or other some sort of predisposing liver condition, they may not be able to, to get enough of it for pain relief. Now, two questions here. First, you know, you have to go into animals before you go into humans, and you've been through this journey. Uh, how do you tell if an animal has pain relief? Yeah, so that's that was one of the um, early experiments that we did to, to really convince ourselves, and that took about a good two years to convince ourselves that it was reproducible pain relief. And so as you could imagine, this is its own huge field. And so for this, we worked with the experts in the field and we brought some of that equipment into the group itself. We demonstrated in four animal tests, three of which the investigators were blinded as to who was administering, whether it was a placebo or sham drug or our compound or say Tylenol and who was doing the readout. So they were what are called blinded. So we didn't know who was administering what. And then there are ways to automate, automate how the pain relief occurs. So one of them is something that's pretty well described. It's called the Von Frey with electronic testing. And you gauge how much 
pressure is induced in the hind paw of the animal without anything invasive, and then they withdraw depending on how much pressure is given. And the compounds, when there's an active compound that reduces pain, obviously you could imagine they withstand the threshold more. And that's what then we, one can quantify. We can quantify. Well, you kind of brought me back to when I was a kid and my brother used to like hold on to my finger and then he'd hold on to my finger and reason I'd be pulling the finger. It's the same sort of Similar. principle, but the, the hind Very legs. Very good analogy, so we yes. Know that. Okay, so now we actually are getting in the, okay, real people, humans are using uh, this compound in tests, of course. These are early days yet. How do you know it's not damaging the liver? Do you look? Do you see things in the blood? How do you know? Yeah. So obviously, the number one priority is that it's safe for us at this stage, of, by far. I mean, that's the the, the thing that um, we are the most concerned with. And luckily, um, we've been able to um, observe that in the ongoing trial. So the way that we're measuring it is the normal ways, which is doing seeing how they are in a clinical sense, observing them, the vital signs, and also doing laboratory draws. So the liver tests, the liver function tests are specifically being drawn, as well as kidney function, other things, coagulation, the blood counts, the chemistries, and, and a whole factor of other things, looking at the heart, the lungs. Um, and so all of those things are assessed to make sure there isn't something else we wouldn't be expecting. We, have, we had pretty good confidence that it would be safe because of the mechanisms, how we know it's not safe in, in the lab and in animals. And obviously, when you go to humans, sometimes there are things that are, you cannot predict. But we've been quite happy with the results so far in the phase one. Well, primarily you're working on oral administration, but you also want to give it in an IV so that the person doesn't have to be uh, awake and able to consume it to give the pain relief. But you're primarily focused on oral here. Where are you in the human trials? So right now we're, I would say, well along the phase one trial. We're about two-thirds of the way, and uh, we're That's all safety and toxicity. It's all safety, tolerability, toxicity assessment, and what are called pharmacokinetics. How is it absorbed? How is it distributed? You know, how can we measure it? What is the half-life? And we're we're really happy with the results. Uh, We couldn't be happier with them, actually. And and we know the market needs this. Um, We know patients need this uh, for the safer treatment of pain. Um, And what gives us confidence is really the science behind it that gives us a lot of confidence because we know how it's safe. Uh, Again, we have to now prove it in humans. So your father, Dr. Nicholas Passan, enormous career. He's just, it's been terrific. You are building a career that's fantastic in its own right. How is it you work together? What does each contribute? How do you collaborate there? Well, uh, we, we began this really talking about it in late 2016 and and for um, a couple of years is really getting off the ground by um, like I mentioned there's this collaboration with a with a chemist that we know in Spain and um, then bringing it into our into his laboratory and his group to try to do what are called the killer experiments to make sure that we were thought we were observing we were observing and then understanding how it works and so he's the scientific co-founder and um, I'm the other co-founder, and we both bring in different aspects. Obviously, the, they have a tremendous amount of neuroscience, you know, brain research technology and techniques and expertise. They, they're hugely known for work in stroke and epilepsy um, and traumatic brain injury. So a lot of neuroscience. And then obviously, I've, I've spent a couple of years at the NIH um, as Howard Hughes Fellow, and I have a translational program as well as my physician work. Um, 
I've been able to contribute more with the operational and the writing of the grant that we have from the NIH and being able to obtain the funding and moving the clinical protocols forward. That is great. I hope you come back and see us again. Keep us updated. Thanks for coming in. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you for for having us, for having me, Maura. It's been a real pleasure. Dr. Hernan Bassan is the co-founder and CEO of South Rampart Pharma in New Orleans. More information is available at southrampartpharma.com. For Biotech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Listen to more biotech podcasts at biotechnation.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. Biotech Nation is a regular feature of the weekly public radio program, Tech Nation. Listen to the full show via podcast or on your local public radio station. For Biotech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.